we're going to do now is with this co-infected case try to bring home some of these points uh, that have already been brought up in the uh, prior cases and especially in the lectures and, and bring it all home. Run up to the mic, ask questions if you want. This is, this is the final shot. Get, get a, uh, as much out of this as you can uh, as we head into the home stretch here. All right, so 46-year-old uh, Hispanic male with HIV, type 2 diabetes, neuropathy, and chronic hepatitis C infection. Released from prison about six months ago and here to reestablish care. He has a history of MSM uh, exposures, uh, some drug use, heavy alcohol in the past, and currently is uh, not using drugs or alcohol. His HCV was diagnosed uh, in the mid-90s, uh, no episodes of jaundice or symptoms of uh, end-stage liver disease. Uh, his meds are metformin, uh, tenofovir, FTC, der boosted darunavir, gabapentin, dronabinol, uh, uh, and morphine. Sorry, I knew I was going to massacre it. It's, it's like nuclear for uh, you know, your friend. Uh, nuclear. Yeah. Physical examination is unremarkable. Uh, anecteric uh, and no stigmata, stigmata of uh, end-stage liver disease. Okay, uh, albumin 3.8, uh, ALT is uh, less than the AST, his total billy 0.8, INR 1.1, hemoglobin 14.3, played the count 133,000, ultrasound uh, done in 2004, mildly enlarged liver, normal echogenicity and contour, normal spleen, no ascites. So uh, that's what we've got collected from uh, his medical records. He's heard about the new medicines. He's here for hepatitis C uh, treatment and wants to know whether he should be treated or not. All right, so what additional tests now in this guy, having learned all that we've learned, having heard from Susanna, Marion, and others, what are we going to need to do to get this guy ready for treatment? So everybody's uh, interested in staging disease, or a lot of people want to stage disease, uh, uh, getting a genotype. I don't know. What, what do you, Ken, we'll start down with you. What, do you. Do you think this guy needs additional staging information, or you feel pretty secure on him? Or Well, well first, you everything you cite here is important in, in making a decision. This, this is one of those really tough <laughs> questions. Uh, if you weren't allowed that, then the... You, there's some reasons to suspect that this guy may be advanced liver disease. That's about as far as you can classify it, but stage three to four. Uh, you know his HIV current treatment. You don't know his past, but I'm not sure that's going to matter right now. Uh, you'll definitely need to know his genotype or else, because you won't be able to make a decision about use of DAAs or not. Uh, I would not do the IL-28B, and, and the viral load is informative, but not critical at this moment. Now, what we actually kind of withheld was that if you take all five fingers and push all the buttons at once, then you get the right answer for this question. So it's kind of tricky. You've got to get to your keypads evenly, like equal pressure. Okay, so that's Ken saying that that's his, his answer. So we, we're going to get a lot of this kind of information. Um, 
And right, so there, there's, there are data to, to support the, the understanding of disease stage, not just for uh, the urgency of hep C treatment, but really in terms of a lot of prognostic factors. These are data from a Baltimore uh, HIV clinic that look at survival according to the hepatitis C disease stage by liver biopsy. And so you can see that there's survival differences, and this is all types of survival, uh, but we can see the same for, uh, for uh, liver-related survival. The lines even get uh, greater. So in an HIV, HCV co-infected person, uh, disease stage does matter in the urgency of treatment of all types, actually, whether it's HIV-related or liver-related, uh, differs. Uh, uh, obviously with the most extreme differences being uh, liver-related um, survival. Okay, so there's the data, uh, some, some of the data to support uh, getting dis disease stage, but as, as we said, we're going to get all that information. Okay, so 1A, he's uh, 3.7 uh, IU, uh, 3.7 mil uh, IU per ml, so high viral load 1A. He had a biopsy in 08 that was F3, F4, He's CT, IL-28 CT, uh, and uh, his HIV treatment history is there. Uh, Mike, what, what about his HIV treatment history? What, how does that hit you? Looks pretty standard. Uh, started off on a uh, Favrin's-based regimen um, and then has had a little bit of resistance mutations at K103N, but now is on a standard Darunavir regimen. Seems to be doing pretty well. Okay, so you, you're... Uh, feeling like that's not really affecting you one way or the other. No. All right, so when we, now when we're moving in forward with our treatment considerations, uh, which of these would be true? There's no evidence that the HVPIs work in co-infected persons. Please don't answer. So there are some of these, these are called trapdoor questions. If you, if enough people answer, then the, the, the speaker that was responsible for making that point doesn't get a ticket home. So uh, <laughs> you, you have to be very careful with some of your responses from here on out. No evidence that the HCVPIs work in co-infected individuals. No evidence of long-term benefit uh, from HCV treatment. The odds of SVR are better with an HCVPI compared to just using PEG and RABA alone. He is at increased risk of HIV relapse uh, if he's treated. So that's a breakthrough of his, uh, of his HIV. Uh, he needs to be listed for liver transplant first. David, I'm headed to you, so you can okay. uh -oh. <laughs> Wow. Okay, so thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Smart group. Susanna, <laughs> Susanna already left. You can let Susanna get on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> call the airport. She gets to go home. All right, good. So we know that, and we, and we, we have some pretty good information. Now, the, the listing for liver transplant. Ken, when do you have, I mean, we, Marion got into this a little bit. We talked about this some. Uh, if you send somebody with a, with a low mail, they just laugh at you, like she said. They, they do. They, they say, are you idiots? You, you ID people do not know what you're talking about, and they send the patient right back. Unless you put them out of Xanavir, then they list them. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> and then we get the last laugh. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> that, and that is a trick that is often used, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but so this is a patient that is probably not ready for listing at this point. He is uh, he's still a well compensated cirrhotic. Um, 
I would really want to make sure of that, by the way. When you, when you have your report that says patient has cirrhosis, F3, F4, the first word in my head is idiot. So the uh, pathologist is hedging their bets and really isn't sure if this is cirrhosis or not. So I'd want to look at it. But you look at it, you say it's cirrhosis, and, uh, and this patient has a platelet count in the 130s. They have no splenomegaly. There's no ascites. There's no suggestion of a mass that would lead you to start thinking about an HCC. There's no history of encephalopathy. Uh, he is cirrhotic and should be evaluated for varices. I'm suspecting he does not have them at this point. And in that setting, I would treat without considering listing. Um, if any of those things are present, you need to have that patient in a liver center for their treatment or work closely with that liver center and, and be prepared because uh, they will pass through all of the meld stages in a matter of weeks, and right. uh, you need to be very careful. Everybody okay with that now? So we all have sort of a feeling for what's going to work, when you can treat, when you, because that's important. I think that's been kind of hard. So uh, when, when, the, when you start to see any of that stuff headed in the, in the dangerous zone, uh, albumin, billy, stuff, some of that stuff starts to get, uh, then you, you list first. Uh, otherwise, you can go ahead. All right, good. Um, all right, well, certainly we've been through this, and I'm not going to uh, belabor it. Let, let's uh, just skip these slides because we've already seen the data that uh, uh, show that uh, the response rates are greater uh, both with telapavir and bosapavir in uh, co-infected persons compared to those with uh, um, just taking uh, HCV, I'm sorry, just taking pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And I'm not going to get into the details of those studies since uh, we, it's more fun to do the cases. Okay. Um, okay, so which, what would you recommend now in this guy? Uh, treat with PEG uh, uh, interferon and ribavirin. Uh, watchful waiting until the HCV protease inhibitors are actually FDA approved. Watchful waiting until multiple new HCV drugs are available. So like it's going with an interferon free arm. Uh, treat with PEG, interferon, ribavirin, and HCVPI, and consider a change in his antiretroviral, which was, what was his antiretroviral therapy? Does anybody still remember? Darunavir. So boosted darunavir with Truvada. Okay, so, uh, so, so there's your options. I wish there was some way we could give more credit for the people that answer this way, with like a forward motion. Because that ought to count more than just the, the sort of passive answers, but, but it doesn't. You only get one either way. Um, all right, so 60% considered changing his antiretroviral uh, therapy first. Charlie, we're headed to you with this one. Yeah, yeah this, is, uh, this is pretty straightforward. So darunavir, ritonavir was one of the bad actors with both bosepravir and telaprevir in terms of drug interactions. And so it's not a drug recommended for use with either of the HCVPIs. And so, you know... I guess 30% um, of you said you would go ahead and treat him anyway, and I think you're probably saying that for two reasons. One is because there's empiric data, um, at least with bosepravir, that people on darunavir or ritonavir who get bosepravir seem to do fine. Um, and the other issue here is um, this person has already been fully suppressed for two months, and some people believe that the risk of decreases in uh, darunavir concentrations are less 
in someone who is fully suppressed for some period of time than in people who are just starting treatment. Um, having said that, you know, I think the I think most experts would say pick another boosted PI, and certainly this is, is uh, something that would be contraindicated in the FDA-approved package inserts. Any, uh, any, any comments or questions? Remember, you can come up to the mics. You can just shake it. Now, uh, all right, so, and everyone agrees that we're going to treat him, and, and nearly everyone wants to treat him with uh, a PI. Um, uh, some changing the antiretrovirals. Mike, what, what would be, let's say you were in the, I don't know where you would be, but let's say you wanted to change the, the heart, what, what would you think about it? In, well, in this I guy? think a reasonable choice here, um, assuming he would be okay taking twice a day medicine, would be to switch him to raltegravir. It's going to be the most uh, HCV treatment friendly. I don't have to worry as much about the drug-drug interactions. Uh, so that's kind of where I would lean uh, if I was going to use telaprevir, I uh, can't use efavirenz in this case because of the prior resistance. So I might, I guess we're, if I'm going to use that, I'd probably lean towards atazanavir. But I'd probably just put them on uh, raltegravir and move on. Now, are you worried, do, do you have to check for uh, background resistance to raltegravir, or can you even check for it? <laughs> well, if he's suppressed, it's going to be real hard. So you're, you just got to take a flying uh, guess and, and move on and... Uh, do the best you can. And baseline resistance to integrase inhibitors is still quite uncommon yeah, unusual, in the right. U.S. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you do the good history and, and go and go ahead and switch them. Uh, the majority would. Some would, would go on and, and just monitor closely. Okay, good. So let's see. Uh, right, and then just the, the, the point that um, follows here is, is obviously this, the website. I think that a lot of us are... are uh, Realizing that this is a work in progress and that the most updated information changes monthly, it has uh, recently. Thank you. Okay, so um, so in this case, the darunavir was changed to raltegravir, uh, and uh, his HIV remained suppressed a month later. Uh, and is that realistic? How long after a, a change uh, do you want to wait before you're going to start the hepatitis C treatment. So, so if he's truly resistant to raltegravir and you switch him from darunavir ritonavir to raltegravir, it's basically dependent on the kinetics of viral replication. So it's, a, you know, a few weeks, not 12 weeks, before you should see rebound. So, um, you know, I wouldn't wait 12 weeks if that was a concern. Uh, I, you know, I think uh, it would be maybe two to three. I, I hope I'm not Reducing Given the options. The I hope I'm not reducing see. the options for. Let's see what everyone says. So, so let, what would you recommend here to to, to treat uh, with the pegraba? Uh, that's kind of a not the greatest answer because we, why would you have switched the darunavir out? You, you want to vote or you, let's vote? Should we vote? I was going to do the vote. Okay, let's is, vote. Is, I think this was supposed to be a vote. Yeah, time. Let's, let's see. There's a lot of numbers and choices, so I think it's a vote. Uh, so let, let's let's see uh, let's see what people are going to do here. So it's getting late. Dave, Dave wanted a question where everybody got the right answer, so that was why he was going through this. There you go. I used to do that in school, too, you know, try to get the teacher to start talking about the test before, the, before he passed it out. It worked. Sometimes it would work. All right, so everybody's going to treat with uh, um, the, the PI, and, and you feel like one month is long enough. Now, what about, uh, so you said that's enough to see breakthrough with HIV if it's going to happen. What about uh, side effects or toxicities? 
uh, from the medication switch, as if raltegravir had any. Well, that, again, that's one of the attractions of raltegravir. It's basically side effect free. Okay. So, so you wait a month or so, and then you can go ahead and get on with your, uh, uh, with your HCV treatment. There's one subtle thing I feel compelled to say is that there have been uncommon but occasional cases of uh, aggravation of depression with raltegravir. It's, it's reported some of the literature had some personal anecdotal experience with that, so that's the only thing I could think of that might make you want to watch a little bit more. But that's, to my knowledge, that side effect or that AE only occurs in people who have had problems with pretty significant depression in the past, and he doesn't seem to. So one of the questions that came in would be uh, relevant at this point, and that's that there's heard it through the grapevine, literally uh, on the card here, heard it through the grapevine that you can actually really get away with taking tilapavir with less than 20 grams of fat, and that, 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 that that's just kind of like, you know, an ex- exaggerated kind of thing. Is what, Any comments on that, Charlie, or anyone else? Um, you know, I think uh, there no, there's no data, and... and then the question is, um, what do your concentrations of tilaprovir have to be? In other words, if you decrease the concentrations by 30% because you're not absorbing as much, would that reduce, reduce your chances of having an SVR? Um, I, I, I personally would say in the absence of data, it's not something I would take my chances with, particularly after asking someone to invest $50,000 in a course of tilaprovir treatment, I'd want to maximize the possibility of an SVR, and that would include taking it as the manufacturer recommends. It's only 250 a day for an Egg McMuffin. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe Vertex could provide a supplement for that for the people taking tilaprovir. We've also heard anecdotally anyway with this anal kind of symptoms and pruritus that it, a lot of it relates to people who probably are not following their, their high-fat diet, and if you counsel them again and have them really concentrate on taking more fat with their medication, at least some of it seems to go away. I mean, our, our, in our mono-infected clinic, the nurse practitioners certainly feel pretty strongly that um, the few patients they've had that really complain about it, if they, if they really take the medication correctly, that tends to go away. And a, and a tablespoon of peanut butter is cheaper than an egg McMuffin. So, uh, yeah. I was just so trying while to we're doing our that. fat cost effectiveness analysis up here, and we, the, so the idea being that more drug getting absorbed, less drug hitting the anus, and that's the that's the the idea with a, with going with high fat to prevent that. I was um, just staying with the golden arches theme here. <laughs> so, Dave, I think I have to leave, but I just want to thank everyone. Okay. <laughs> Ken's got to rush off to see one of those uh, psychiatrists in Cincinnati. <laughs> I, I didn't, didn't mean nothing to, else to do, but, you know. I didn't mean to offend you, Ken. <laughs> it was that golden arch. He doesn't like being wrong. All right, so um, while so we have, we, so we, have two, we have two members of our HCV board who are in the audience. So Marshall. May, and, and Christine. So you all want to come oh, up, please? I didn't and, see because you don't, yeah, please, this is... It's like when you come out Letterman, it's yeah, just, you know, Christian Marks and Marshall Gillespie are stepping in, both at Cornell. So, Marshall, which one would you use, Pesepavir or Tlapavir in this case? No, I'm just kidding. That, that's not a fair question. Actually, I'd refer the patient to ACTG 5294. Excellent. <laughs> Open at Excellent. multiple sites in the city, a study Excellent. of Pesepavir. Say Ken something Sherman. about that. So that's a study for... Uh, Tosepavir, the phase three study to register. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that in that study, the, um, 
the plan is to allow protease inhibitors to, to look carefully at the PK. So there'll be data on the interactions in patients who have liver disease, actually, and who are you know, on um, bosepropyr with the HIV PIs. So it should provide good data that's needed. So while we're, uh, thank you, uh, while we're transitioning between, uh, w within this case, um, th uh, David, th there's uh, some questions about the new drugs for different uh, genotypes. So mm -hmm. can you use, uh, for example, bosepapavir and telapavir for genotype 4 or other non-1 genotypes, and are there new drugs coming for the non-1 genotypes? Yeah. So, um, you know, what... There is a little bit of data with telaprevir and bilsepravir non-1 genotypes, although in general the activity is much diminished. Um, uh, some for genotype 2 and 4, there may be a little activity. In general, genotype 3, there's really no activity for bilsepravir and telaprevir. And then some of the next-generation protease inhibitors, uh, the same type of thing. They, they tend to be more pangenotypic, but still genotype 3 in particular tends to be a problem for most of the next-generation protease inhibitors until you get all the way to kind of a third generation. The Merck 5172 drug actually does seem to have some activity against genotype 3. Um, the other classes we've talked about, NS5A inhibitors tend to be pretty pangenotypic, and so do nucleotide inhibitors. So there's definitely other things on the way. Charlie, there's a question about uh, intolence and rolpivirine as alternative heart options uh, in this guy that we just talked about, the darunavir. Yeah, so as far as I'm aware, the data are not yet presented. I, I, maybe they're going to be presented within the next three months. But um, I, I would say that's not, it's not a good option because of the possibility of, of enzyme induction. So. Oh, okay. There's a, I think there's a little bit of ropivirine data presented with telaprevir, um, but at the at the pharmacokinetics meeting right before the easel meeting, uh, and it, it looks pretty neutral. It's better than obviously if it doesn't have the induction, um, but it's it's healthy volunteers in a, in a you know a small number of patients. And the concern I heard with that, although I'm definitely not a, a pharmacologist, um, and I probably learned it from Charlie, was uh, that the that when you try to take that to, to patients, that the QT issue might start becoming a factor, whereas there was no obvious signal in healthy volunteers. That's a very different thing when you get on to somebody with, who's on other medicines and has uh, perhaps baseline elevated uh, QTs. So yeah, I don't know what, I don't know the answer to that one, but I guess there's some concerns, but we're not ready to give that one a. Uh, yeah, there, uh, and now, now you're reminding me, there was a study presented at the, uh, in the, at the meeting in Barcelona, and I think the concern there is increases in rolpivirine concentrations. Yeah, so, yeah, because of the QTC, twenty percent, I think, was what. Yeah, right. The biggest challenge I'm having are patients who are on, and I'm sure the audience as well, people who are on more of the HIV salvage regimens like darunavir with um, etrovirine, and really having no data and nothing to change them to, and so not being doing? eligible for any of the studies. So. Are you are you allowing? What's um, what, in, in practice? What are you doing in that situation? I mean, it, it is vexing. I'm just waiting. Waiting. Okay. Hoping that the Gilead drug won't have drug <laughs> And yeah, waiting. All right. Well, then the other question has to do with the idiot comment that was made, and if the pathologist, <laughs> quote unquote, is not as uncertain as cirrhosis, how would I know? Um, <laughs> I can't, I, you know, stay tuned. I don't know. But, uh, I think that, that Ken's point was that um, 
the pathologist should make the call, but F3 and F4 can be uh, uh, hard to distinguish, and if they won't make the call, then you can more or less treat it. I always just upgrade. Yeah. Uh, so if you look at the studies, uh, like the HALT-C study, people that had F3 still got a hepatocellular carcinoma, still got uh, uh, end-stage liver disease, albeit at a slightly lower incidence than the people with F4, but all the same bad things happen to them. So practically, the same uh, kinds of measures like hepatocellular carcinoma screening and aggressive treatment have to uh, be in, uh, employed in someone with F3. I, I treat them almost uh, indistinguished. Uh, I don't distinguish between F3 and F4 uh, in my uh, situation. Are you guys okay with that? Yep. Okay. All right, let's see what we got coming up here next. Okay. All right, so the, in, this, in this case, uh, a triple phase uh, CT shows no evidence of hepatocellular carcinoma. He uh, got an EGD uh, that showed no varices. His ARVs were changed to include rotegravir. Uh, and uh, now the question is not what um, uh, to use for an HCVPI, but how to get it. Uh, he only has Ryan White uh, and, um, you know, bringing up some of the issues of uh, uh, the access to care that actually were already uh, highlighted here. That it, it, it's one thing to sit here and theoretically act like you can just snap your finger and pick a drug, but it, as we all know, everyone that's been trying to do this, it, it can be very difficult. And you say, yes, you want to do this, but then it's not FDA approved. So you get into a battle with the insurance companies. And um, one practical uh, form of advice that I would give is now the DHSS guidelines have specified. Um, that this is recommended, that PIs are recommended for genotype 1. And so you can photocopy that and send it. Uh, there's a CID article that some of us contributed to that says to do that, and that's why we wrote that article, so there'd be something in print to point to to fight with the companies. And um, the upcoming IAS uh, USA ARV guidelines will probably also have a, a, a statement uh, to support this practice. So. There's going to be some uh, ability to uh, combat um, the, the uh, insurance companies pushing back on this, uh, but the ADAP programs, including the one in Maryland, are currently not uh, supplying. Have, does anyone have a, come from a state where you can your ADAP uh, supplies HCVPIs? So you can use which one in corrections? Both? And which state? So your, your state corrections can use Bosepivir, your contract, okay? Any other experiences with that? Okay. All right, so, um, so this guy started, uh, these are his baseline labs again. He starts on uh, Tilapivir uh, with three times a day with food, uh, fatty food, uh, and uh, the Ribavirin uh, 600 twice daily. And what are you going to tell them about the adverse events? I think some of these are going to be um, uh, a little bit overly redundant uh, since we've been through a lot of this today. Uh, most uh, likely severe reaction is rash. The most likely severe reaction is anemia. The most likely, reasoning, uh, to, the most likely reason that he will stop is not responding. 
Most likely combination is HIV breakthrough. Sorry, most likely complication is HIV breakthrough. And then five, I don't know, and that's why I'm taking the course. You could have used that at the beginning, but not now, not at the end. most likely reason to stop is not responding to treatment, and the most likely severe reaction is rash. Uh, I can't, they're kind of That's overlapping. That's actually, anemia. most likely, anemia. Anemia. Is the number two well, I, is the, David. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I, I mean, I tend to agree. I think, especially in our experience, we're accumulating, you know, we, we got away the first few. We thought, oh, there's not going to be that much anemia, but I tell you, the last three or four, I mean, we've had to transfuse several, and they've just kind of dropped like a stone. So I definitely think anemia is the problem you're going to run into the most frequently. Um, you may get a severe rash. Luckily, we haven't seen any yet. But, um, and then the preliminary data you've showed from the Phase 2B studies suggests that responses are probably going to be pretty good, and that's not going to be the most common reason they're stopping. Marshall, Kristen, any comments down there on uh, reasons for people? Uh, I guess in, in the... Uh, in the, we don't have any experience yet from the ACTG phase three study, so we will have to see. It was interesting in the um, that the I think the most likely reason people stopped actually stopped was a not responding statistically, but we don't usually think about it that way because um, we think about the side effect stopping them uh, as being more prominent, uh, and I think. Uh, Surprisingly, in the phase two studies with co-infection, anemia wasn't the problem that it is in, in the real world. And it's the same as with the phase three studies in HIV uninfected. I don't know. That's, my experience has been every patient's had anemia. Yeah. Uh, so I agree with you and your comments. I think that this slide was meant to, to be the right answer, was, most, uh, was supposed to be most uh, likely reason to stop is not responding, and it's based on the phase two data with telapavir uh, and with bosepavir, I think that might have been the... Uh, any comments? I was just going to say, I think a lot of us are treating our patients with more advanced disease, so we may be also selecting out the people more likely to have the side mm -hmm. effects, you know, compared to maybe the study, but that's the only... That's an excellent point. The studies took less than 10% of the patients. The studies had cirrhosis. Mm -hmm. In our practice, we've all started with cirrhotics, and they've been 95-plus percent cirrhosis. I think you just hit on hit on the difference is the cirrhosis. Okay. And so, yeah, these, these are some of the data that uh, are behind that. These are uh, events of special interest uh, with overall treatment. This is from that telapavir study. Um, mild, moderate rash, uh, anemia, uh, only 18%. Uh, that certainly seems low, but again, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, and, and you can see uh, lower grades anemia. Uh, more common, one in three patients. Having to use uh, recombinant erythropoietin, only 8%. Blood transfusions, about 10%. Uh, obviously more in the, uh, the telapavir containing compared to the placebo arm, but uh, reasons for early discontinuation, and I think this is uh, where it comes from, the, the meeting the futility rules, uh, uh, adverse events, relatively uncommon, and other, uh, meaning uh, not responding, uh, the balance. So most of the futility rules were met, of course, in the, in the placebo arm, which uh, didn't have very favorable responses.
Okay, back to the case. At week four, the viral load is 2672. And there's the, the blood work. Plate the count still hanging in there, even though he's got advanced disease. Uh, hemoglobin 11.2. What would you do at this point? Everybody caught that viral load? 2,000. Continue without change. Stop everything. To stop just the tilapavir. Continue but send an HCV resistance test and call Dr. Peters and ask for help. She was supposed to still be up here with that point. <laughs> This will be interesting because we've kind of covered this, but okay, stop everything. Good. So the stopping rules, I forget who covered that. Did, was it Susanna? Susanna. Yeah. yeah. She, she gets to get on the plane. Good. <laughs> Any comments from the panel? If you can memorize No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm not even going to. That, that's kind of how I feel about the stopping rules, that slide there. It's just hideous looking. Okay. Um, week five, the patient was, uh, so we're continuing on here. Uh, the HCV RNA was repeated one week later. This is just like David's uh, case, and the viral load went up instead of down. Were uh, definitely, and, and that's actually not unreasonable. I mean, any lab test can be wrong. I think repeating a test uh, is is logical, uh, but this patient's headed towards futility. Um, everybody, remember what's the chance of there being resistance mutations in this guy? Uh, at this point, vote. Mike, we're not going to vote, right? We can vote. Yep. <laughs> Music. And I think I'm going to end with this one. If we get it, if enough people get it right, we get to end with this. <laughs> suspense. Yes. Right, <laughs> David. Yes. They got it right. So I get to get on the plane, right? You get to get on the plane. Every, all those speakers get to get on the plane. The audience gets to go home. Everybody did great. So I, I think with um, we, there's only five minutes left, and the rest of the, the case is more or less continuing to underscore some of the main points that we've uh, brought up. Before I close out, does anyone have any questions? We have five minutes left. Uh, are there questions from the, uh, the floor that you want to shout out that we didn't get to? We've got all your cards up here. We, we tried to get through most of them. Yes. Yeah, please. If somebody is a Good question. Um, Ken, Ken Sherman knows the answer. Yeah. So the question was, if you if you're heterozygous for the gene for hemochromatosis. Does that, I think you said, does that affect your likelihood of responding to hepatitis C treatment, or do you mean your risk of hemochromatosis, iron overload? Okay, it's, it's if you don't have, uh, I'm not aware that that affects the course of the disease, because it's not supposed to markedly increase the risk of iron overload. Um, I think what a lot of people do is get that test and a ferritin at baseline. And if you have a no normal ferritin and, that, and someone's heterozygous, then uh, you don't need to, uh, you know, that, that's essentially a negative result. That's how I think about it. Do you guys have any other? It's uh, a question. Okay. The patient had been genotyped alternate, uh, alternate BCC. 
So this question was, if you're, if you're IL-28BCC, that's the good one, uh, would you use the direct acting uh, agents and the, um, uh, or as opposed to just using pegylate interferon uh, and robivirin alone? And, and the answer to that has something to do with whether you practice in the United States or Europe. So in some places where they're really concerned with cost, then they will use PEG and ROB to see if you can get uh, first, see if you get an RVR, and then um, go ahead and get an SVR with that. Uh, uh, others who are more interested in not so much in cost, but in curing the most people in the shortest amount of time uh, on, on drugs will nonetheless go ahead and use the um, HCVPIs for two reasons. One is the overall SVR rates, even for a CC, are um, slightly higher if you use a PI, at least it was with the Talavavir study. And secondly, the likelihood of qualifying for the abbreviated response-guided therapy is higher. So more people get cured in less time with the PI, even though it costs $50,000 more uh, with the case of the Talavavir. And for some of us, that's worth it. And, and John Bartlett calls this a, 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 whether you're treating your mother or your mother-in-law kind of an issue. Uh, and, you know, and I don't, I, you know, I don't know what the right answer really is.